0: Welcome to the Shmooz, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Lubomir Luchuk. Lubomir is a Canadian academic and author of books and articles in the field of political geography and Ukrainian history. He's currently a full professor at the Royal Military College of Canada. He joins us today to talk about the recently released How People Live in Soviet Russia, Impressions from a Journey. Newly translated from the Yiddish, Journalist Mendela Oshirovich's account of his visit to Soviet Ukraine in 1932 at a time when millions of Ukrainians were dying of starvation, in what historians have come to see as the direct result of Soviet policy. He was able to meet people in the Ukraine. Yiddish and Russian were his languages, and his book describes one of the most penetrating and moving accounts of daily life in Ukraine during the famine. This is one of the first translations into English of Ashurevich, well-known figure to readers of the U.S. Yiddish press, and a fluent writer on a wide range of political and literary subjects. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining me today.
1: My great pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: So... To start off with, can you tell me a little bit about how this work came to you? And uh, you published this in record time, got it translated and brought to publication. Um, It originally appeared in Yiddish. So what, how did this all happen?
1: Well, Mendel Osherovitch's book, as you just mentioned, first came out in 1933, published only in Yiddish in New York City. And it deals with his visit to essentially Soviet Ukraine. He spent a little bit of time in Soviet Russia, but most of it with two months February, March of 1932, was spent in Soviet Ukraine in his hometown of Trostinets and in that region. Um, When he came back and published his memoir, it was in Yiddish only, and it remained in Yiddish only until I heard about it in December of 2018. And that was when a scholar from Israel, Dr. Wolf Moskowitz, now an emeritus professor, made a passing reference to it in a little article he wrote for the blog of the Ukrainian Jewish encounter. This is a, um, an organization that's been set up to develop closer ties between the Ukrainian and Jewish diasporas uh, funded by the Temerte Foundation. And uh, Wolf Moskovich is one of the board of directors. He wrote a little article and I read it. And I thought to myself, my gosh, that sounds like a fascinating memoir uh, because there was a hint in Dr. Moskovich's um, article about what it might Deal with, namely the beginnings of what Ukrainians and other scholars now call the Holodomor, the genocidal Great Famine of 1932-33 in Soviet Ukraine. So I looked online, and in fact I found it at the Yiddish Book Center in Massachusetts. I found a a copy, a reference to the book in Yiddish, and of course that raised another issue: How am I going to read it? And of course I don't read Yiddish. So I found a translator, Sharon Power, through um, the uh, Jewish Archives of Ontario and contacted her and we made an arrangement for her to translate. I must say she was excellent. She is not a Soviet specialist but she uh, translated the text within a few months really. uh, Professor Moskowitz then very kindly agreed to uh, check the uh, text against his knowledge, his personal knowledge of life in the Soviet Union. He was an emigrate from the Soviet Union And working with the two of them, uh, yes, you're right. We got it out in record time. I heard about the book, and as I say, it was around uh, December of 2018. We had more or less finished it by uh, December of 2019. And then, uh, well, of course, the delays that came about with COVID and so on uh, delayed us a bit, but we got it out by uh, the February, March of this year. So in just over a year, and I'm very, very pleased. I think it's an important source of information about the whole more that we never had before.
0: Yeah, it's it's an amazing, it's an amazing read and it's also beautifully translated. Uh, it reads so seamlessly. So did you know about um, Asherovich? Um, no, no, you, I, I, yeah. I
1: must say I had no knowledge of this man before. Um, when I finally did a little bit of research about him, obviously I recognized that he was born in Soviet Ukraine. He Uh, You mentioned he spoke Yiddish and, well, obviously English, um, also Russian, but also Ukrainian. So he was a multilingual individual who left the Tsarist Russian Empire from Ukraine, but within the Tsarist Russian Empire before the First World War. He wandered about a bit before he settled in the United States became a naturalized American citizen. And in 1914, he was already working for the Jewish Daily Forward, which of course was an extremely important uh, newspaper published in New York City for many years and until sadly, until it went out of print recently. Um, So most of his career was spent there. And as you say, he was a literary person, a a playwright, a poet, a translator. And in 19... uh, 32. He was given an opportunity to return as a correspondent for Ford uh, to his hometown to see what life was really like in what he called Soviet Russia, but in fact Soviet Ukraine. So he took that offer and he went for two months and uh, traveled extensively, uh, saw a lot, and left us uh, with a firsthand account of conditions in Soviet Ukraine he was already seeing the beginnings of the famine, of the Holodomor. It's it's important to underscore here that he was there in February, March of 32. The famine didn't really reach its height until about a year later when people like Gareth Jones and Malcolm Muggeridge began reporting on it. But he was already talking about how millions of people were under threat of uh, death from famine. And in fact, we now know that over 4 million people perished in the six months, really, of 1932-33. So, uh, you know, as a genocide, this is one of the most horrific to defile uh, 20th century European history. You know, that many people, 4 million people, at least in six months. Um, he already had a sense of this. And, you know, he was clearly a man who loved his home country, Ukraine. Um, he called it Soviet Russia because, of course, in those days, that was a very common uh, mislabeling, you called the whole thing Russia, but he clearly loved his homeland. There are some very moving passages about how he looks at the landscapes of his youth and remembers them, friends he met in the village and in the cities around Touristinets whom he still remembered, and then of course his horror at what he discovered about Soviet rule. Um, not, only, not only the inefficiencies, but the brutalities, um, the, the mass persecution of uh, Jews and Ukrainians and even Russians alike. Um, his own two brothers, sadly, were both agents of Soviet power. Uh, one of them was actually a grain collector, and the other one was probably in what we would now call the NKVDD, or the Soviet secret police. This gave him some access, uh, and he took advantage of it, and of course saw a lot. Now, he was just there at the beginning of the famine, so he didn't see the full horror of it, But this was a very perceptive man and he could already sense that something very tragic was unfolding. And as I say, he writes about millions of people being under threat of famine. And in fact, that proved quite prescient in the sense that, uh, well, as we say, demographers now tell us uh, the death toll is probably just over 4 million people.
0: It's a stunning story. And, you know, I think that he writes, if I may, with kind of the remove of a journalist. which I would imagine was really hard for him in connection with this story. As you say, he's, he is, he was born there. Um, he has family. He goes back to visit. Um, he's returning to sort of both have, a, I think a family visit, reconnect with his mother who he knows he will likely not see again. And all of this kind of unfolds, um, as he goes on the journey, uh, and keeps encountering people. And he learns of this sort of underlying narrative. I mean, you mentioned that he, he likely knew a little bit about this, but what's revealed is just stunning. And it, that that this was imposed on these people in the way that it was. And again, I'd love you to talk a little bit more about that sort of the relationship with two of his brothers who are, you know, supporting, supporting the, the politics behind this and see this as the way to the future and the others who are starving to death um, and, and just so tragic um, that these two parallel stories are going on and he's reporting about them. And he's, the way he tells the story, I think, is admirable.
1: Well, you know, he had to be extremely careful because although he had brothers who were, you know, one of the, well, I think both of them in effect were his minders to be, to be frank. Mm -hmm. They were, you know, Uh, allowed to travel with him and stayed pretty close to him for most of the time. So, um, you know, they they were careful to always interject about how things would be better eventually. So, you know, there was always this sense that, well, yes, times are tough now, uh, but Daniel and Bougie, his two brothers would say, things are getting better and things will certainly be better in the future. And so we must sacrifice now. And yes, things look tough now, but one day it'll be so much better uh, than it is now. So they kept trying to sort of distract him. They kept trying to sort of justify what he was seeing, but obviously they both recognized that he could see because this wasn't just a a Western journalist stuck in Moscow, who might just be reading Soviet press releases. This was a man who was traveling by train, first class and second class soft and hard as they used to call it, who could see hundreds of thousands of people trying to get out of Soviet Ukraine to other parts of the Soviet Union where there was food. Uh, He could see people uh, resisting. He could see people already um, filthy and impoverished and, in a sense, almost disintegrating. He could hear even some of his friends from his earlier days who were sympathizers with the revolution, saying, my God, what have we done? How did this end up? Um, So he talked to Mensheviks, of course. He He himself was a socialist, so he was inherently sympathetic to what the revolution was supposed to have brought to the Soviet Union. So he went there with an open mind, and with linguistic capability, and with, of course, family feeling and a love for Ukraine. And he came back horrified. Um, He came back disillusioned. Now, Forward was a socialist uh, newspaper, but it wasn't necessarily pro-Soviet. And so when he published his observations in a series of articles in Forward, uh, Osherovich found himself denounced by those who were unapologetically pro-Soviet. And so it's a very interesting thing that this important book written in Yiddish never was translated until we did it a year ago uh, into English. So we've never known about it until Dr. Moskowitz um, came up with it and wrote the little article. I'm told that there probably are other books like this that are out there that are observations and commentaries on life in Soviet Ukraine in this time period that are still unknown to us. And of course, that would be a great field for someone to go into and, and explore because uh, we have so very few eyewitness accounts by non-Ukrainians. Oh, now, I have to c- qualify that by saying, for me, uh, Mendel Lusharovitch is a Ukrainian because he was born in Ukraine, mm-hmm. but of, obviously of the Jewish faith. Um, he, I think, never took a more, um, public stance about the famine when others started writing about it. So for example, in 1933 you had a very famous debate between a Welsh journalist by the name of Gareth Jones who traveled for just a few days in Soviet Ukraine but saw the full measure of the Holodomor of the genocide and wrote about it, for which he was attacked by Walter Durante of the New York Times, Pulitzer Prize winner. And there was a debate between these two men on the pages of the New York Times. Now, I cannot believe that Mendel Lasharovitch wasn't reading the New York Times. He was a journalist and forward and so on, very educated man, uh, very literary. Um, He must have seen this exchange, and yet he stayed mum. And I think it was because, frankly, fear of repercussions against his family. His mother was old, his brothers were agents of Soviet power, but one of them, Bougie, probably was uh, persecuted because he hadn't silenced uh, Oshirovich, his brother. The other one, Daniel, I gather from a passing reference we found, was also uh, repressed but survived and actually died in the Second World War in the ranks of the Red Army uh, because Mendel Oshorovich de- dedicates another book to him. But Oshorovich certainly... Um, was subjected to public ridicule and scorn, and there were calls—you know—there were some very nasty things written about him, both by the Soviets and by fellow travelers in the Jewish American left. And you know, I mean, let's let's be real about it. It, it. That was a pretty powerful constituency in its time. So, being a truth teller, being righteous, actually landed Oshrovich in trouble with some of his uh, fellow Jewish Americans, and. So that, and probably a fear of repercussions against his family, um, I think silenced him. Uh, now, yeah, you know, I don't blame him. As I say in the foreword to the book, I mean, you know, it's very easy for me to sit around in 2019 and say, "Well, he shouldn't have done this or he shouldn't have done that." Nonsense. I mean, he he told the truth, and he told it to his constituency, and he's left us with that memoir, which, as you've pointed out, is poignant. It's written uh, from through the eyes of an experienced journalist. It's compassionate. It's accurate. It's detailed. Um, at points, it tends to sort of gloss over things because I think he was aware of the fact that the Soviets would read what he wrote, and so would people who were not necessarily sympathetic to his views. So at points, you know, my, my inclination, my hope is that as a political geography I wish he'd said more about that or this or that subject, but it is what it is. And it is remarkable. It is one of the most detailed statements we now have about uh, the early months of the famine in Soviet Ukraine. And because we were able to, um, you know, publish it in English, it's now on bookshelves literally around the world. And including uh, Complementary copies that were sent to the Russian Federation and to uh, Ukraine. Uh, so hopefully, whether you're in Jerusalem or you're in Kiev or in your New York City or in Toronto, you will be able to find this book in a major public or university library so that it is available for students and scholars and those interested in that period of um, Ukrainian history or Soviet history.
0: So along this journey, he does encounter people and he's. he's... He's very uh, approachable uh, as a figure. I mean, people invite him into their house. They they feel badly that they can't share anything with him. He's very mindful of that. But he really does learn this story firsthand through so many different voices. And I was struck by how many of them urge him to bring this story back to America. They're fascinated that he's from America, Mm -hmm. and they're so hopeful that by going back and telling about this that their relatives that they implore him to go and connect with and they give him addresses and all of that 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 they will somehow manage to rescue this situation, so curious to know um it doesn't sound like this was very well received it was written in Yiddish, so it's written to an audience um that was you know, related to those who are being affected by it in many cases. Uh, was there ever any effort to make this a larger story?
1: Well, beyond publishing the book and publishing some articles in forward, I would have to say no. Um, people in the, you know, I mean, look, the, the, the Jewish or Yiddish diaspora and the Ukrainian diaspora haven't always seen eye to eye, we all know that, let's not beat about the Bush. Uh, But when uh, Oshorovich finally died in 1965, there was a very positive obituary, a condolence written about him on the front page of Ukrainian Weekly, which is one of the major Ukrainian American newspapers. And in that obituary, when you look at it, there's no reference to this book, they weren't aware of it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, even though there might have been disagreements on this issue or that issue, when the man passes, they know who he is, they, they, they mourn his, his death, uh, they, they pay attention to it, and it's not buried on page 12, it's, it's literally front page news. And yet they didn't know about this book. So I would have to say that possibly Mendelovitch went to some of the people who had relatives, uh, well, he did visit people in Soviet Ukraine who had relatives in New York City and elsewhere, And he clearly took down names and addresses and contact information that's, he talks about that. And in fact, we reproduce part of one of his notebooks where there's a whole list of names and things. Um, Did he visit those people in New York City or elsewhere and tell them what their relatives in Ukraine had said? I I assume he probably tried, um, but we don't know. And how much could they have done to help anyone in Soviet Ukraine? Not much. I mean, Mendel Oshrovich was privileged to be allowed to get into Soviet Ukraine at that time. Others went, some wrote glowing accounts of about how wonderful everything was, how industrialization was proceeding, how collectivization had uh, improved at the agricultural economy. So there were people who were uh, towing the Soviet line, as it were, and reproducing essentially Soviet media releases, and Walter Duranty is one of them for the New York Times. Um, Others like Mandela who go and tell the truth, find themselves pilloried. So my sense is that he probably, because I get the deep impression from reading his book and I've read it several times now, he was an honorable man, a moral man, a man who believed in social justice, a man who was shocked to the very core of his being by what he witnessed and heard and saw, death on the streets, hunger, people. I mean, imagine, you know, all of your listeners have guests, have people over for dinner. Imagine if you invited someone to your home and all you could offer them was a dry crust of bread and you watched as the guest didn't know whether he should eat it because he could see you were hungry. You know, Mm -hmm. and and the only people who had food were Soviet party officials, uh, bureaucrats, um, Soviet uh, guests of the Soviet Union who would be housed in hotels, which were carefully monitored. And of course, in Osherovitch's case, um, his brothers were able to, you know, uh, prepare a feast when he came home. But neighbors came and gawked at it. And in fact, at one point, there's a a good story where he talks about how um, he was in the home of, Uh, one of his um, Jewish Ukrainian contacts and a Ukrainian peasant came to the door and they hid the food because that's food you know you can't show people that you have food it was that Mm -hmm. it was already getting that problematic so uh, you know we have a situation where you know a a very decent man confronts of course no one called it that then but confronts genocide confronts, confronts a horror unimaginable to most people. And he's just shocked, he doesn't know what to do. So I think he probably felt that telling the truth was the most important thing. I'm sure he was hurt when people who should have respected him as a journalist of integrity, um, questioned him, challenged him, berated him, insulted him. Whether he reached out to some individuals, you know, I will never know. But very clearly, um, he did his best in the context of the times. Now, again, you know, we're always – it's always easy to be that, you know, that famous expression, the Monday morning quarterback. Well, he should have done this. He should have done that. I'm not interested in playing that game. Uh, I think Mendel Lashrowicz bequeathed to history a remarkable memoir of his times, He did it with honesty and integrity, and it resonates to this day. As you say, it's a very easy read, and when you read it, you get a very clear sense of what life must have been like in those opening months of 1932, and it only got significantly worse.
0: Uh, You attached a word that I was going to attach to it as well. His writing does, I mean, many words, actually. His integrity in telling the story is really... Remarkable, and it really speaks to um, good journalism, good reporting. He tells you the story. He doesn't impose his feelings about it. I mean, it's, it's evident what what he took away from it. Um, and I, I have to say that um, the translation by Sharon Power is just magnificent. I mean, it just, it reads so beautifully that you're not aware that you're reading it in translation. And I think that's an amazing task for somebody to find the voice of the writer and do it so well. So hats yeah, off for all of that. that.
1: Yeah, wonderful yeah. job. And you know, it, oh. it's, uh, there is there are a few hints if you you know if you go back and read it. There's one point where he talks about just wanting to go back to his hotel room, and of course the hotels were better stocked with food and were cleaner and so on. Just wanting to go back to his hotel and scream, basically, you know. It, I mean, Mm -hmm. can you imagine the moment you left the confines of that guarded, you know, very circumscribed space called a Soviet hotel, where there was food and drink and officials, of course, minding you, and you went out on the streets and you saw beggars and starving people and people trying to flee the country and everyone you spoke to was despondent with the exception of a few soviet officials and i suppose a few uh, well there are some foreign delegations that are coming through and they're all you know this is all wonderful because of course they weren't seeing the truth nor could they speak the languages of the country so you know can you imagine the psychological burden getting up every day knowing that you will be able to eat and then seeing people starving all around you and then coming back to the hotel to have something to eat and going out the next day and recording it all and doing this for two months. Um, yeah. Even his own mother, and this is, this is the only part I have to admit, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to whinge a little bit here. There's no record of what he and his mother talked about. The whole book is her. She's crying because he's leaving. She's crying because he's there. You know, and of course, I'm not surprised. My mother would have done the same thing if she hadn't seen me all those years. But they must have talked. But what did they talk about? She was there. She could see what was happening all around her to her neighbors, to her friends, uh, to fellow Jews, to non-Jews, to Ukrainians, to Russians in in the town and the villages around her. She must have had an opinion. She must have said something to him. He doesn't say a word. And he even doesn't say very much about what Bougie or Daniel, his two brothers, Mm -hmm. had to say to him. There are some conversations. It makes it clear that they were minding him, makes it clear that they were kind of watching him and, 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 you know, promoting the Soviet regime. But even then, there's not that much. You know, I mean, wouldn't you have asked your brother you know, Daniel, how can you go and take food from the Ukrainian peasants? Right. You're carrying a gun and a rifle and, you know, you've got a pistol and you're going out and you're doing this and I can see people are hungry. How can you do that? He must have asked them that. I can't believe they they, they would have been together for two months and there would have been that kind of conversation. There were only hints of it. There were only hints of disagreement and a kind of, well, let's agree not to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But I have a feeling that Mendel deliberately obfuscated the conversations he had with his family members because I'm quite, I'd be quite certain that they were frank, but that he didn't report it because he would have imperiled their lives. They would have paid, you know, with their lives or certainly exiled to Siberia for saying what they felt. And they clearly were, you know, a a family that, you know, talked. I mean, obviously there's multiple references to them meeting and talking. You just don't know what they talked about.
0: Right. It it's very true. Um and and you know that there were sort of subtext there um yes, which he teases out in just the, the the smallest way. Um well I thank you for joining us today um for bringing uh this book to us. Um I know you sent it to our bibliographer David Mazower, who um then shared it and it's an incredible amazing compelling and important read, and one which I urge all of our listeners to go out and find. Again, it's How People Live in Soviet Russia, and it's how, how does one purchase this?
1: Well, um, first of all, let me put a little plug in. I'm very su- uh, supportive and grateful to David for uh, you know, accepting the book and, and calling your attention to it. I had no idea of the Yiddish Book Center or its activities until I read a biography of it and was amazed and admired very much the story of what the Yiddish Book Center has been able to do, uh, rescuing a language that was almost lost. So congratulations to everybody who supports it. I think it's a wonderful project and uh, well, well done. Um, in terms of getting the book, unfortunately it's a little more difficult than it might otherwise be. Uh, the book is published by the Kashtan Press and you can order it through by basically co- contacting me so perhaps you could put the, my contact information online where, or make mm-hmm. it available through uh, through your um, uh, podcast to um, your listeners. And very happily, we'll, we can get books to them. Uh, the book is $40 US and uh, $7 for postage and handling. So $47. Uh, the book itself is just over 310 pages long. Uh, it's illustrated. There are some very interesting photographs there from another album of photographs taken by an Austrian um, who was in Kharkiv in Eastern Ukraine at the time and show scenes from about the same time that uh, Mendel Lusharovitch was there. So um, it's available. Uh, I'm pleased to say that we've made copies available to libraries around the world. So as I mentioned earlier, if your listeners are in New York City, they can get a copy to read, borrow a copy from the New York Public Library, from Columbia University Library, from the Library of Congress, university of chicago library and in fact across the united states including the yiddish book center which got a copy so um hopefully listeners can easily find it and if not then please direct them toward me and i'd be happy to uh, sell them a copy
0: will do um and again thank you so much for bringing this work in translation to new readers uh it's just astounding and I'm so glad that you connected with us and for joining me today. Thank you so much. You. Um, so Thank stay you. well.
1: Yes, in Ukrainian, we have a saying, it's called which means translated roughly eternal memory. So I just like to say to Mendel Shorovich. He's a real mensch, a real righteous man who uh, uh, I admire very much.
0: And this this begs the case for translating more of his work. So again, thank you for introducing it to somebody who couldn't read it in the original. Um, And we hope that one day you'll be able to come and visit us.
1: I would love to. Thank you.
0: All right. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Sarah
0: Bleichfeld. Be well Be healthy and tune in again soon.